Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. This is A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zelwyn Heidi. Joining us today, the Reverend Aaron Uphoff from the great state of New Jersey. Gentlemen, how are you? Doing good. Thanks for having me back. How's the, how's the weather out there? It's good. We still have snow on the ground, but it's warming up, and it should hopefully all be gone by the weekend. And I'm just so excited it's getting warmer again. I love the warm weather. So tell me, you're living in New Jersey, the most urban of all the word fitly spoken guests. What do you do for fun up there? What's a, what's a hobby you have? What do you like to do? Well, things are expensive out here, so we're kind of selective with what we, we do that costs money. However, when folks come out to visit us, we usually go into the city and we do things on the cheap, like go to churches, which, you know, a lot of them just have open doors and they'll let you in for free. And, you know, you take a picture by all the landmarks and the buildings and you can ride the Staten Island Ferry for free. Trump Tower. Trump, Trump Tower. Yeah, I've, I've had ice cream in Trump Tower, rode, ridden down the golden escalator. Yeah, no, it's it's good stuff. Uh, we, there's less to do. It's just spread out and lots of people you gotta to fight the traffic and plan your your time around that and personally i i'm getting back into woodworking my dad gave me his old table saw that he had when i was a kid he got it back when norm abram and new yankee workshop was big on pbs supported by viewers like you did you get the tote bag <laughs> the umbrella <laughs> didn't get the tote bag but i got the first book of all the projects so i'm looking forward to uh, getting started on that when it gets warmer and uh it's warm enough to to go down to the basement and do it nice zelwyn how are things in the wild north surprisingly warm it's actually warmed up yeah Re- understand me carefully here warmed up to 30 degrees so <laughs> we are are you wearing your cutoff jean shorts yet Getting closer, getting closer. I know I wasn't wearing a coat earlier today when I was walking around outside. So yeah, so it's it's getting nice and warm, at least for a couple of days, although I think we're going to be getting some more snow this week. So it is what it is. And mild and windy here in Illinois. That's about all I have to say. <laughs> Do you have trees on the edge of your property, Willie, to help break the wind? A lot of farms over there that I've seen and grew up by had that. We we have we have a handful of trees sort of towards the edge of the property, but it, it does not do so well. It is very windy here. It's always kite weather. <laughs> the unofficial slogan of Illinois, <laughs> right? You know the the kids were uh, a little bit dismayed by the the howling sound the wind likes to make around the house sometimes. So, but they got used to it. it you know it is what it is. You know don't wear a parachute or anything too billowy or you'll blow away that kind of thing where you grew up right 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 i'm I'm well familiar with it do you miss the midwest winds or you become a full urbanite now well the funny thing is like when i was living there i never really liked it you know it's if you it, it does get bitter cold during the winter if you get a cold wind but 
it's one of those things like living out in New Jersey now, you know, you kind of have this, whenever you live far away from where you're from, it's tempting to have this kind of nostalgia about everything about where you're from, even the parts that you didn't like at the time. So, you know, it's like flat and not much scenery, but I kind of miss that actually, just being able to see the sunrise and go down over the cornfields. Right. It's like Zelwyn requires big sky or he will shrivel. He will dissipate. I will. I will panic and start running in a certain direction. So Zelwyn, Zelwyn sees too much grass, too much, too, too, too much grass, and he gets depressed. <laughs> All right, gentlemen. Well, we've gathered here today to talk about Christian discipline. It's not just for Lent; it's for all of life. Let's define that because we hear the word discipline and sometimes we think about, I don't know, excommunication or the minor ban or something like that. That's not what we have in mind here. We're talking about spiritual discipline. So how would we define that? What's the purpose? A spiritual discipline, I think the easiest way to define it is to be intent about who we are as Christians, because I think we often use the word discipline in a negative sense. Like, you know, somebody is under discipline, which is kind of what you're getting at. But the word discipline is just really just doing what it is that God has given us to do and to do that diligently, to do that with our whole heart, to to strive after him with everything that we have. And as we'll see, God gives us specific types of discipline and often for different purposes, but they all serve the general principle of the mortification of the flesh. And, if I may use this term, sanctification. It is about setting your life aside, ordering your life around the things of God for the betterment of yourself as a person and, you know, even in service of your neighbor. And that, we bristle at that. Why might we bristle at this conversation? As Lutherans, we really, I mean, obviously emphasize justification and God's work for that alone. And the only thing we've been contributing to the equation is our sin. And so we're, we're often scared or hesitant, at least, to, to talk about anything that has to do with Christianity, our faith, and our Christian life that emphasizes or focuses in on our own actions, even if they're legitimate, they're legitimately prescribed in the word, like to being told to do something just kind of makes us like, well, whoa, 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 are you saying, are you saying, I'm going to be justified by my works? Are you telling me I, I have to do this or that, that I have to do this to be right with God? Another reason we might bristle at it is, again, just this idea that we see Christianity as being this entirely passive kind of thing. You know, we very often talk about God doing all these things for you. And that's true. We are not saved by our efforts. We are not delivered from sin by our efforts but through the Holy Spirit and through the working of God. But at the same time, God has given us specific things that he calls us to do. Things that will actually, well, they're not going to hinder us in our walk with him. Because, I mean, it's when God tells us things like, you know, when you pray or when you fast or when you do these things, he's not just offering, you know, a nice little suggestion. These are God's commands. I mean, we even say that in the small catechism, right? You know, why should we pray? Because God has commanded us to. Right. Mm -hmm. And we don't think about prayer as some kind of meritorious work. And yet at the same time, prayer is a discipline. Prayer done right. Prayer done orderly. I mean, there are good and bad prayers, but do we not order our lives around prayer? And we'll talk about it a little more later, but in the morning, at meals, at night, 
those simple things are acts of Christian discipline in a rudimentary way embody that sanctified life of a Christian. I'm using sanctified in this context as the set apart life. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's what we want to say. The whole life of a Christian, one is a life of repentance, but it is a life set aside for the Lord. The Lord bids us come die. And so we do. And we follow him taking up our cross. Well, and I've also heard it expressed this way, and I think this is helpful. Because of our nature, because of our tendency towards sin, we always are kind of on this downward trajectory, you know, Mm. kind of being pulled downward. I don't really want to do this. I don't really want to, you know, do all these things that God would have me do. Whereas God is calling us upward towards himself. I mean, that's, you know, Philippians language. And the only way that that's going to happen with the work of the Holy Spirit in us is through this kind of intentional discipline, this kind of intentional upward look towards heaven and the things of God, rather than just kind of, you know, always sliding downhill. So we're undertaking the discussion, which might be new for many listeners, and it might be old hat for for some others. You know, we want to be clear, we're not stressing sort of a cloistered asceticism, no, no hair shirts, no braided cords around your thigh, no nails in your shoes, anything like that. We're talking about actual biblical discipline. Well, maybe not for you, but anyway. (laughs) No one goes hardcore. Every shirt he owns is a hair shirt. (laughs) But the Christian life is described as a fight, a struggle, is it not? Right. The the very language of the scriptures, and I think this is where, you know, some of our other episodes about taking the scriptures for what they're actually saying is so important. The scriptures themselves describe the Christian life in violent terms, you know, offering a kind of holy violence, as it were, towards the things of God. Some of the examples that we have of that would be like in Luke 13, where Jesus says, you know, strive to enter by the narrow gate. Or you have Ephesians 6, you know, this idea of wrestling. 1 Corinthians 9, which we read earlier, you know, running a race. Uh, 1 Timothy 6, you know, fighting. This, all this kind of violent, striving, you know, very aggressive kind of language is maybe something that we're not used to using, but it is certainly a way in which the Holy Spirit describes our walk with him. Right. And it is an active walk. Everybody loves the sports metaphor until they realize it means they need to be active. <laughs> and and I think because we talk about the conscience so much, and not that we shouldn't, it is a Reformation concept after all, and a biblical concept. But it, it's almost to the point of, well, I don't want to talk about running the race because I might be slow and it'll hurt my conscience. It'll make me feel bad or something like that. But the Christian life is like any I mean, it is like an athletic competition in this way. Every athlete must train. Every athlete, you know, progresses. They don't start out winning gold medals. They're not all Mark Spitz or I can't even think of another gold medalist off the top of my head, but you know what I mean. They can't all be Babe Ruth. That's a bad example of discipline. He was, uh, <laughs> you know, everything is is a process and it's it's you're going to fail and you're going to stumble. That is the Christian life. But the right. Christian life is also being diligent, and, and you know, the Lord picks you up, he dusts you off. Remember, God the Holy Spirit does dwell within the Christian. It'll you know, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is within you both to will and to do his good work, right? Yep. What does that mean then? That, yeah, it is God active in you, but you are 
participating. You are there. It's not synergistic salvation or anything. It is simply the regenerate man living out his Christian life and learning what it means to be a son of God. Yeah, we don't want to think of uh, the Christian life as a participation trophy. Yeah. Like, you know, everybody's getting, you know, you all, you all did good kind of thing, because that actually goes against the, the very metaphor that Paul is using, this idea of striving for excellence, striving to be the best Christian that we could possibly be. Yeah, he doesn't right. say everyone's going to get the crown regardless, so don't even worry about it. <laughs> and one of the things is that, like, the fact that we are still in the flesh in the old Adam, you know, lives in all of us. It, it, we're we're just as you said earlier, we're going to have that just that downward trend. Just if you kind of put it in neutral, we're going to roll down the hill. It's it's all the more necessary to be active in the fight against it. You know, we cooperating with the Holy Spirit, who we have been given to put off the old man and drown and die and drown and kill him in daily repentance, and so that the new man may rise to live in righteousness. And and I think that it's just real tempting to use sometimes or to, I'd say, misuse the gospel as an excuse for just this passivism, which doesn't try and do anything, at least as far as you know, religion and spirituality is concerned. And I'm reminded of Paul's words in Galatians, for you're called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. You know, he talks about this temptation to take the freedom that we have and then just sort of use it to gratify our own desires, which is not what the gospel is for. And we'll get into uh, the particulars of just how to do this, but right now we have to unpack the why. We have to convince you that this is a good thing. The devil would have us be slovenly. He would have us be sloppy. He would have us wallow in sin and brokenness and fake shame. And that's what he wants. He wants you to say, there's nothing, you're, you're... you can't do anything, you know, glory in it, gloat in your sin, own it. And we would agree, own the own your sin, admit to your sin, for God only saves real sinners, and real sinners only does he save. But what does God do when he saves the sinner? He drowns the old Adam, as we ought to do daily, gives you that new nature, and you receive the Holy Spirit. And again, going back, it is God who is at work within you. God loves you so much that not only does he forgive your sins, but he promises to deliver you from them. Not only the judicial consequences, but actually the chains of sin that enslave you, that fetter you. Now, that's not made perfect until we're all raised in glory. But our time now is God teaching us and sanctifying us and teaching us, what again, what it means to be a regenerate man. If we have been regenerated, if we have been born again, to use the language of John, why would we not want to do what God wants us to do? I mean, it's the new man desires to do the things of God. And if he's desiring to do the things of God, he's striving after them. He wants to be the best that he can possibly be while recognizing that he's not going to be perfect in this life. Put it this way. Paul calls us to be moderate in the things of the world, to put aside those things which might actually cause us to stumble or to, you know, to not be too entangled in the things of this world. But the devil would have us be moderate in our piety, to be moderate in what it means to be a Christian. You know, no, don't cause waves, don't get stirred up, don't make a big deal out of it. And we can talk about some of the the objections that would come with that. But 
this moderation in being a Christian is deadly. It will kill your soul. I, I don't know how to put it. We're not to use our justification as an excuse for sin. And we think of sin sometimes as just actively going out and pillaging villages, that kind of thing. When oftentimes sin is manifest in slothfulness, sin is manifest in not doing the good that we ought to. I mean, you realize you sin against neighbor by being neglectful just as much as you do by robbing his house. What does that mean for ourselves then? We don't do any good for ourselves by letting our spiritual physique become flabby. And we don't... (laughs) And we certainly aren't setting the right example for our families and fellow fellow brothers. You know, can we can we even know how to serve our neighbor if we don't first learn how to discipline ourselves? A lot of these disciplines are the Christian sacrificing of himself, either time, I mean money, whatever, so that either the church can be furthered or that he can show grace and mercy to his neighbor, whoever that might be. So it's not mere introspection. That's what I said. It's it's not just like a monk in his cell or or anything like that. There is introspection, and there is the question of you know the solitary Christian meditation, those quiet times alone in discipline. But ultimately, discipline is practiced among your brothers, right? You mutually comfort one another and encourage one another. It's not something to be done completely alone. It's a communal act. As the individuals are encouraged and disciplined and, and all of these things, then so so is the community. And that's how it ought to be in any kind of of spiritual exercise. All right, guys, we've got to go to a break. Any any last words before we break? I was just thinking of like the parable of the unjust steward and how, you know, we always try to make it into something else. But Christ himself says, you know, that the sons of this world are wiser in the things of this world than the sons of light. And this idea that the devil and the wicked pursue after the things of this world with such diligence, and yet would we stand still in the pursuit of heaven? Hmm. Amen. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Visit our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find new articles each week on the Bible and other topics. You can also join us on Facebook at WordFitlyPosting. That's WordFitlyPosting with a P to discuss anything you've read or heard. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back with more WordFitly Spoken. We are back. This is A Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grills, Zelwyn, Heidi, Aaron Uphoff talking Christian discipline. We still haven't gotten into the real specifics of how yet, because we're still discussing the why. 
we were discussing some objections uh, to what we're talking about. So, gentlemen, let's continue that. What are some other objections that people might raise in a discussion about bodily discipline? One of the ones I think that gets used, especially historically, but I think you still hear it from time to time today, is that Christian discipline is too, like, melancholy. Dour, kind of like, you know, you're just a fuddy dud, you don't like having fun. The kind of people that always rain on your parade. (laughs) Buzz Killington over here. Buzz Killington. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this idea, and well, it's a kissing cousin to the idea that if, you are trying to live your life out as a Christian that you're somehow then missing out on all the fun. Right. Right. And when we hear that all the time, you know, Hey, before you settle down, you know, like for example, before you settle down and have kids, be sure to waste your whole life up to your mid thirties and pursuing worldly goals. You want to get that out of your system first. To really, then you could maybe enjoy these other things. Don't want to miss out on the, you know, whatever. I don't want to trigger anyone, but anyway, the Christian life then becomes unnecessarily dour. We, we like to pull quotes, even from like Luther about, you know, beer drinking and, and carousing, not carousing, but beer drinking and reveling and that sort of thing. But he also has a lot of things to say about Christian conduct and Christian piety, right. quite frankly. Right. But nobody wants to read that, Luther. That doesn't look good on a, on a beer mug, a beer stein. <laughs> But of course, the way we would answer an objection like that is to remember that the things of this world are, I mean, they're fleeting, they're temporary. And it doesn't mean that being a Christian means you can never have fun or that you can never do anything that's entertaining. It just have to remember that if you're really letting these worldly things get in the way, you really have to ask yourself why, I think is the, the best way to approach that. And and it's not just a question of, like, say, alcohol consumption or tobacco or things like that. I mean, it can be an excess of food. It can be just general malaise. I mean, laziness, that kind of thing. I mean, you know, we don't have to point to, like, stereotypical examples here. You know, as a worldly pleasure, I mean, obviously anything can become an idol. Right. Another thing we want to look at is it would strain our relationship with the world. In short, I might lose friends. Uh, yeah, well, the world hates us. I <laughs> Lord, mean, do we not give up everything to follow you? <laughs> <laughs> what will we have in the resurrection? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> we'd laugh at it because it sounds funny and we'd say, you know, oh, haha, but it's really something that people do struggle with. Like, you know, if I'm doing these things that, you know, God wants me to do, I'm going to seem socially weird. Or I'm going to seem like, you know, I might actually strain some of the relationships that I have with family and friends. But then again, I mean, Jesus does call us to pursue him, to love love him above all other things. Yeah, I mean, you're almost guaranteed some, shall we say, personal strain. And frankly, it is going to be harder to find friends at times, at least friends that you share these Christian things with. I mean, you can have friends who aren't Christians, right? I mean, or acquaintances or whatever. You can even have meaningful relationships, platonically speaking, and and that's fine. But ought a Christian seek other Christians for fellowship? I think that's a question we should ask here too, because you will be asked to give things up. You will be asked to strain relationships and things like that, to say nothing of courtship and marriage. Right. You know, you when you're looking at marriage, you certainly want someone who shares the same confession of faith as you, who worships the same Lord, because you're going to be raising children in that faith and that kind of thing. And so why take a cavalier approach to any relationship and why assume that any relationship is a guarantee? 
were not all of the apostles called to give up their homes and, and go out into the world? Did they not all give to the uttermost? Did not Jesus himself have nowhere to lay his head? Well, there you go. Let's not bring the Bible into this now. <laughs> <laughs> Christian discipline, not bringing the Bible into it. Yeah, pick one here. And we will talk more about our Lord Jesus Christ coming up as a specific example. And then the last one is no time. I need time for amusement. I need more time for work. And that's to say you can find time for this, but you can make no time for your soul. And it becomes a tragedy. Anytime a soul is lost is a is a great tragedy. You know, every story of the great false teachers and false prophets is in and of itself a tragedy. How much more sad of those who have tasted of the truth of Christ and then and then let go. Right. Or be wooed away. Now, it's kind of funny. I realize we just talked about Christian discipline not being dour, and I've been dour for about the last seven minutes. But <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. And, and, of course, the point with that is is that people always say dour in the sense of, like, you know, they, we just hate life or something like that. And that's not the point at all. But with, with this one, I think it's actually really interesting because we kind of chafe at the idea of spending significant amounts of time in things like prayer. But we find it very easy to spend significant amount of times in things like entertainment, just amusements or anything of that. And I'm not saying that these things are bad. And that's always the problem with these kinds of discussions is people will come over and say, oh, well, you're just saying, you know, these things are bad. We shouldn't do them. No, the Lord gives us things to enjoy in this life. But the question is one of priority. Yeah, we're not just prohibitionists here. You know, cut like bare moralism, that doesn't really serve you any good. It's a, exactly like you say, it's a question of priority. It's a question of even passion and direction. You can enjoy worldly recreations, lawn bowls, whatever, lawn darts. I don't know what people are doing today. <laughs> the the video games, whatever the kids are into. And that's fine in its rightful place. It can't consume you. It is an interesting phenomenon for me to observe the time a Christian will spend carefully memorizing mythologies. Harry Potter, even Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, right. that kind of thing. They'll spend time memorizing these mythologies and yet won't spend a quarter of that time, an eighth of that time, memorizing the true redemptive history of mankind. Right. The story of Christ for them, for the world. Now, if you like pop culture and fictional chronologies, that's fine, once again. But I'm saying, if you can name all the bit parts in the Harry Potter series, but you can't tell me who, say, Nam is. <laughs> or Mephibosheth. That boy's legs, man. It's a it's a touching <laughs> story, by the way. You should read it. Mephibosheth. Google it. It's kind of like the broader Lutheran church. We are right to say, come to church and receive God's good gifts, because as pastors, we want you to receive all the good things that God would give you. And this is just an extension of that. God gives so much more than we desire, and our cup runneth over. And so even beyond the Sunday service, God is working within us. And we ought not to neglect that. We ought to relish in that privilege to grow closer to Him, to know Him better, and to sacri- to make our bodies as a living sacrifice for him. Now, moving on a little bit, because i got to keep pushing it, because I promise we will get into how and what's. So we've talked about you know, these objections, a little bit about the why of the discussion. 
do we have any idea of what, say, Luther or the Lutheran confessions might have to say about these kinds of practices? Uh, yeah, there's a there's a quote in the large catechism, which comes to mind the creed part, which I think is really appropriate. The creed teaches us to know him fully. This is intended to help us do what we ought to do according to the Ten Commandments. For as said above, the Ten Commandments are set so high that all human ability is far too feeble and weak to keep them. Therefore, it is just as necessary to learn this part of Christian doctrine as to learn the former. Then we may know how to attain what they command, both where and how to receive such power. I mean, so <laughs> the catechism, large catechism itself, Luther and the catechism, has this very active view of of how we are living as Christians that, you know, again, back to, you know, not just previous episode that I was on, but other episodes of the the podcast that the law is not only a mirror, but is showing us what to do and how to live lives and tonight in the context of discipline and that we have the faith and the, the doctrines of Christianity, not just to know, to have this head knowledge, but to inform every part of our life, what we do. Yeah, the law is a guide. Imagine that. <laughs> the scriptures are confessing this, teaching this. Our confessions are mirroring the scriptures. And ultimately, the greatest example of this type of consecrated life is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see all kinds of examples of this throughout the Gospels. But Jesus, for example, in Luke 6, is described as praying all night. <laughs> When was the last time you prayed all night, you know? You know, and he is able to do things, you know, with, with amazing zeal. We need to put on one of those like WWF disclaimers, like don't try this at home when we're talking about fasting for 40 days or something like that. <laughs> Jesus in a cage match with Satan. I think I've seen that in some tacky religious goods store somewhere. I'm, I'm sure it's I'm sure it's a thing somewhere. But at the same time, it comes down to that, that our Lord is so zealous in seeking our salvation, that he is providing for us an example of what it means to, you know, to seek God with all of our heart, all our mind, and all our soul. Right, yeah, and speaking of Christ's active obedience, we do want to be sure that that is Christ actively fulfilling the law for us, and that entails practicing spiritual discipline on our behalf. The merits of that are certainly imputed to us, but Christ is, despite popular opinion, an example we are to imitate him. Right. I mean, it's even in the name Christian, kind of, you know, pretty heavily implied there. <laughs> I think it's easy for people to set up false dichotomies like, well, is he our savior or our example? <laughs> Why can't he be both? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, just like an earthly father, right? He's, he's your provider. So does that mean you don't have to listen to the life lessons he would teach you? <laughs> You know, so yeah, absolutely. We don't have to set up this this dichotomy here. He he is our savior. He is our example. He's our leader. He's our guide. He is our shepherd. We follow him, and following him in a sense does entail mimicking him as we can, uh, embracing his example. And it also involves, as Jesus himself says, taking up our cross, which is what you know this discipline is ultimately coming down to, denying the world becoming more like Jesus, you know, being conformed to his image so that when he returns, we will see him as he is because we will be like him. I mean, that's really the ultimate goal of all of this. It happens, you know, with God working in us, dwelling in us, but it is something that we are called to pursue with all that we are. 
Yeah, we don't want to be surprised when we see him face-to-face completely. We'll be amazed and finally seeing him face-to-face. We don't want to be like, I didn't know Jesus would be like this. It's kind of a downer. <laughs> why, why, are you being so, why are you being so dour, Jesus? I mean, yeah. you're why, are you, why are you being such a party pooper? You know? <laughs> I, thought there'd be more, I thought there'd be more wine. <laughs> heaven is just one long kegger, you know, that kind of thing. So That's right. Yeah, the heavenly keg stand. <laughs> but I don't. I don't. I don't really know if the smart money is on craft beer in heaven or not. We'll we'll have to leave that open for debate. But I'm pretty sure there's no fireball shots. <laughs> With the last few minutes in this break, then guys, uh, since we've teased the audience long enough, let's talk about how we go about this. What what does Christian discipline actually look like? And then. What is ultimately kind of the purpose of it? Why does the Bible prescribe certain practices? You know, for instance, and we'll unpack it later, but why is fasting a discipline that's good for the soul, but stuffing your face every day isn't? Why is one thing beneficial and another not? Why do the disciplines embody a sacrificial tone over an indulgent tone? I think the the best way to approach that question is just to recognize that if we are gratifying the flesh, if we are doing things which are just purely sensual, just purely doing them because of the way that I like the way it makes me feel in the flesh or something like that, we are running a real risk of doing something that will lead us away from God because it's going to be something that, you know, I'll I'll become addicted to it. I'll become focused on this thing entirely, and I will leave behind the things that God has given me. I mean, it's kind of like in uh, Deuteronomy when God says, you know, when you come into the land and you get all these things that I'm giving you, like houses and crops and all the good things of the land that you inherit, you might be tempted to say, I got these for myself. And when you do that, you will ultimately end up forsaking God. And I I think that's really the, the, the point why we want to make this distinction here is that the things that God calls us to do are things that will lead us to him. But the things of the flesh are ultimately things that will lead us away from him. What are the things of the flesh? Paul gives us a nice list in Galatians. (laughs) Dissensions, rivalries, divisions, sensuality, gluttony, lust, all of these kinds of things that are just self-indulgent and really only focused on the self. And what's the contrast to that? I feel like I'm being interviewed here. It's okay. (laughs) It's just... It's your T.I. It's my T.I. Well, I mean, in the contrast, of course, are the fruits of the Spirit. You know, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. It's an amazing thing. Love and joy, things we're often lacking. The love part becomes difficult. Self-control, we've all but thrown away for the sake of nitrated meats and wireless video game controllers. It's it's not an easy path, fam. The fact that we're talking about it doesn't mean that we ourselves don't struggle. It, it doesn't mean that anyone reaches perfection in this. We're simply saying that it is a is a goal worth striving for. Because what is the prize? What do we seek for? Why are we running the race that we might see Jesus face to face? And indeed we will, for he has redeemed us. He has called us. He has predestined us to glory. And so he makes the way, and he brings the Christian along, teaching the Christian throughout his life, if the Lord wills. 
I do think going into this discussion, we have to keep that first and foremost. Again, it is the Lord working through us, but we're still there. Right. Okay. You're, you are you are a participant here, and that's fine. That's the biblical doctrine. That's the confessional doctrine. We we don't deny this. Everything cannot become just kind of an esoteric discussion of things that are intangible, right? It can't just be kind of an emotional play that we go through week by week or lecture by lecture or conference by conference that you go to. Twisting the words to where the Christian is not active in their life, twisting the words to where the plain words of Scripture mean something entirely differently, and there are now no responsibilities, no qualifications, and certainly no consequences to what we do and where we are. It really comes down to it. Think of it this way. Christ is our prize, is he not? He is what we are seeking, what we are striving for, that we may have that upward call of Christ Jesus, all of these things which we are running after. And so are we going to let ourselves be distracted by what I've heard so poetically called the glittering dust of this world, the things which are ultimately nothing in themselves. I mean, yeah, they can be used for a time, but are we going to be so focused on them that we actually take our eyes off of Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith? Very good. We'll be right back with the how-to and what-do right after this here on Word Fitly Spoke. He said, Yea, rather blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Hang tight. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. This is A Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grills, Zelwyn Heidi, and Aaron Upoff talking Christian discipline. All right, guys, we've already discussed the Christian life as a struggle, as wrestling, as running, as fighting. So in any sport, you need the right equipment. So let's talk a little bit about the disciplines proper, what the disciplines actually are. Let's talk a little bit about our spiritual weapons. First and foremost, what do we have? Well, you got to have the Bible. <laughs> you got to be in the Word of God. It is uh, the source of all of our doctrine, the guide for all of our life. And frankly, there's there's nothing, there's there's no no place that you can go, no person, no guru, no book that's going to offer you more than the Word of God, which is living and active. Nothing can do better than that. I just wrote a for our parish newsletter. I wrote a letter about not just coming to church to hear the word, but being in the word at home. You know, that think of the word as being food to consume to help you to live. And if you only do that once a week, and even then, you know, for a little less than an hour, or a little more than an hour, it's not a really huge meal. That it should be, it should be something that 
is a daily part of the Christian's life so that he knows, well, all he needs to do to make himself wise into salvation. Reading the Bible, we call it a discipline because it is. We have to carve out the time to do that. We have to make it a priority. And that's something that can easily be done. And frankly, it's easy to read through the entire Bible in a year and just keep that process up. What are some practical ways we can incorporate Bible reading into our daily lives? Well, like you were saying, just making it a priority. If I'm going to wake up and first thing in the morning, like let's say I have to get to work at 8 o'clock or something like that because I work at a bank. If I get up early enough and give myself, say, even 15 minutes to spend reading a chapter or two of the Bible, all of that is going to add up relatively very quickly, and you can actually cover a tremendous amount of ground, even if you are a relatively slow reader. It's just more of the matter of actually getting into it and actually doing it, you know, if we have to actually get up and wake up and just actually do it. I I think back to times when on days where, you know, maybe I got up a little later than I usually do or something, or I had to be somewhere early. And you think of all the things that you you obviously do without question, like you, you take a shower, you get dressed, you know. I have coffee every morning and I, I'm one of the guys, I, I always start every morning with, with a hot breakfast. I just have scrambled eggs every morning. You know, I just never don't do those things. And then, you know, there's been times I find like, well, I've, I've got no more time. I just got to go. And the Bible reading is the thing that gets axed. And that's actually, it should be the opposite for all of that. Well, I mean, I should go out, of course, dressed, dressed for the day and clean, <laughs> but maybe I can do without breakfast. You know, if you're going to pick one or the other, perhaps breakfast can be it. I don't know. Fasting from a little bit of time is a good thing. And I think it helps to look at that time as a sacrifice. Now it's a privilege and it's an honor to do that, but you're giving up something that you would normally use for selfish or busy goals and you're giving it to the Lord and you're dedicating it to your spiritual improvement, right? We seek to learn about God and we only learn about God through his word respectfully you cannot learn about God while fishing. You cannot learn about God while farming, while tilling the soil. It's a romantic notion, right? I feel closer to God in the field than I do in his word, right? I feel God, you know, at the baseball diamond or whatever it may be. But friend, seek him where he is found. Where is God promised to be in his holy word? And with that said, not just the reading of scripture, but also the hearing of the word and where might we hear it? Church is the obvious place that we should come to church, not just on Sundays, but I think whenever we can, when there's other services that are offered, and if there's Bible studies that we can make it to, that should become a part of our lives. I mean, we who are pastors, it's a little different, and we're leading the stuff, but to any layman out there listening to us today, consider reorganizing your day and your week around opportunities to be in the word. Another thing, though, is, you know, we do have the gift of the modern technology and can be used for ill, but there's a lot of good things it can be used for, one of which is there's some great Bible podcasts out there, just places where you can get the Bible and audio. Yeah, there's no sin in an audio Bible. And let me backtrack a little bit. There's no sin in fishing or going to the ballgame or going into the field. The question is, don't, don't make it a spiritual platitude, because we all know what natural revelation leads to, and it isn't salvation. Right. When we're partaking of these things, though, can you bring the word with you as you fish? Not at the expense of Sunday service, of course, but can it be with you on your commute? If you have a long commute, can you make the best use of the time? 
I know Zellwin here is no fan of the audio Bible because he hates when they get dramatic, but <laughs> there's certainly a lot of fruit that can, you know, a lot of uh, positives to an audio Bible, a good audio Bible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I just like my audio Bibles to be just straight, you know, somebody reading it, one voice, that kind of thing. But that's just my own personal peculiarities. And when he when he start putting a lot of other stuff into it, I just yeah. get distracted. The, no, I agree. The music not helpful. I don't know, guys. I like mine in a thick southern drawl with a lot of fiddling. You just want Charlton Heston <laughs> to read the Old Testament in the King on James. Cassette. On yes. cassette. Admit yeah, it. On 48 cassettes in a full leather briefcase that always rides in my back seat. That's pretty wholesome, though. That's a good one. And that's a real product you can get, folks. So check it out. I think it's worth it. <laughs> oh, it, it is. Max McLean's ESV is good and his KJV is good too. Listenersbible.org. Very little bit of music, but he does have an inflection, but it's one guy narrating it. So I actually would recommend that. And we were not paid to endorse it. No. There's really so many good free audio Bible versions out there too that I, I think are just excellent. So, I mean, you don't, you don't even have to pay for it anymore, which is such a great thing. It's legal. And it's legal. Yeah, exactly. Audio Bible kind of bridges that gap between we're reading the word and, and hearing the word. We should also be careful that we're when we're in church, we're not just showing up thinking that we fulfill the obligation by being there for that hour a week or whatever, but actually listening to the readings that are read from the lectern, hearing the word through the preacher, through the sermon, and that kind of thing. Just listening intentionally, which is easier said than done. Honestly, oh, yeah. it's uh, the sinful mind just wanders. The fallen mind is prone to wonder. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. That's in a hymn. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> anyway, we won't get into that one. This is not him posting. That's a that's a few episodes from now. All right. Moving on. Prayer. What is prayer? Prayer is making your requests known to God, offering him your praise, thanksgiving, supplications, and it is an essential part of the Christian life and one of the best indications of the health of someone's faith. If you don't pray, it's pretty evident that you don't believe. First Samuel describes prayer as a pouring out. Prayer as rigor is kind of an interesting idea. Those really fraught prayers that we don't often think of. I mean, it's not all Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. In fact, none of our prayers are going to approach the intensity of that situation. And yet, throughout Scripture, you do see examples of our fathers in the faith making fervent prayers, bold prayers. Does that mean everyone has to look like that? No, it doesn't It doesn't need to be all ecstatic, but is there a right attitude for prayer? Are there right words? What do you guys think? I think really what this comes down to is that the danger we run into, whether we're reading a prayer or whether we're praying out of our hearts, is to basically have them become mere words that we're just kind of speaking without actually, you know, reflecting on what it is that we're doing, which is why prayer is a discipline. Right. And let's be clear. Zellwin is not saying that a written prayer, memorized prayer is not sincere. Right. Right. Praying from the heart, meaning extemporaneous. You don't have your prayer book in front of you or something like that. We pray the Lord's Prayer the most often, for example. And that is certainly something that we are called to reflect on, to think about what it is that we are saying, and, and, you know, and maybe, you know, use the language of being sincere about it, because just saying the Lord's Prayer is not why God gives it to us. You can teach a parrot to say the Lord's Prayer. Is the parrot thereby going to be saved? 
No, of course not. No, only if he say only if the parrot says the sinner's prayer. <laughs> <laughs> it it just it really just comes down to are we wrestling with God in prayer? Are we pouring out as in First Samuel as Hannah did in her prayer our requests to God to make them known so that we are actually approaching the throne of grace with diligence, with purpose, mm-hmm. with drive. Yeah. Yeah, and it's something that needs to have, you know, again, time set aside for it. It takes discipline where, you know, if you find yourself all day and then you're lying in bed about to fall asleep and you think, I haven't prayed today, you know, you're doing it wrong. It should be something that you, again, focus your your time around, the way we focus our schedules around, you know, our meal times. And as, you know, we've talked about before, should be reading the Bible. And you even add this, that it shouldn't be something, you know, and it's an ex corde prayer, you know, that you don't just sort of launch into it without any thought and just sort of say, I'm going to hit the gas and see where this puppy goes. I mean, exactly. I, th- <laughs> I think it's good to, to contemplate what you are going to pray for, not just what you're going to ask for, but things that you're going to be thank- thankful for, that you're going to thank God for, that you take stock of like previous prayers, things that you've asked for that he's given you and blessed you with, and that you even contemplate praises for him. Because it, it does become easy if you're if you don't, put effort into it to just sort of go to the same words or phrases or ask for the same things, you know, God bless everybody and, and stuff like that. Kind of like, kind of like a child learning how to pray. I think, you know, an adult can be that way too. If you, if you aren't conscientious about it. Right. And I would add that prayer and the reading of scripture go hand in hand. That as we read, we ought to pray and it's good to work the words of scripture into our prayers as well. You know, let the words of our lips reflect the words of God. So all good things. Got to move on a little bit here. Meditation, that's related to prayer and reading of the word. Now, we're not talking about transcendental Eastern style meditation, right? Yeah, I think when when people hear the word meditation, they often hear, you know, these Eastern pagan ideas of, you know, just empty yourself, just let it all go. Just kind of, you know, that ohm kind of approach to meditation. That's not at all what Christian meditation is about. Christian meditation is actually reflecting and thinking very seriously on the things of God and on the things that he has actually told us. You could call it instead of emptying, it's more of like filling up with God's words and his promises. It's it's not, an, and again, this is not an easy thing to do because, I mean, it, it literally comes down to, you know, taking time out of your day to actually think about something like our sin or Christ's passion or our spiritual state. Basically, the self-testing, the self-reflection is what we're talking about. Let's take a couple minutes then to talk about fasting. I mean, we're recording this during Lent, but again, the Lord does not command that you abstain from certain things on Fridays during you know a certain 40 days. Right. Uh, so you're not bound that way. And nevertheless, our Lord does expect us to fast. Now we've talked about it in episode 50 a little bit, but let's let's unpack it a little more. Fasting comes about in in kind of two definitions today. The biblical definition which would seem to mean refraining from all food totally. And then our more modern notion of it where it's actually abstaining from certain foods. I'm going to give up diet coke for 40 days. Yeah, I'm going to give up chocolate and let you know about it on my Instagram or something <laughs> like that. Now, both of those practices, I think, are good, and I think they're salutary. I mean, not the social media part, but the the (laughs) abstaining part. But why might one give up food? What's the purpose in giving up food? Now, 
with the caveat, right? The I know that the Catholic notion is this, and it's not necessarily bad, that you would give up food and the money that you would spend on food you would give to the poor. Right. All right. But the purpose of abstaining from food is not so that you can save those pennies and then, you know, give it to the poor. I mean, from a personal perspective, why are we going without food? It really comes down to learning to depend on God in all things, to remind ourselves that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. I've heard it described also as being an an accompaniment to prayer and that fasting should always be undertaken with an eye towards prayer so that, you know, it's not just something like, oh, well, I need to lose 30 pounds, so I'm going to cut off, cut out sweets for Lent or something like that, because that's actually totally the wrong reason. It's really the self-deprivation for the sake of focusing on the things of God. If you take it along with prayer, and if, as we've talked about earlier, prayer in conjunction with the study of Scripture, then you start to get a fuller picture of it, right? Mm -hmm. We're now giving up food, we're giving up time with an eye towards the things of God. And, And so then it's a worthwhile sacrifice. And also, I mean, fasting just has a kind of a purifying quality to it, just speaking physiologically. It's good for us to skip a meal, uh, those of us who can. You know, fasting is not something we want to put on the people who are ill or on children or upon nursing mothers, for example, or pregnant. I mean, historically, the churches have all made exceptions for those people, as they should. A couple of examples and reasons for fasting specifically that were given in the Bible. Christ, for example, is described as fasting during times of prayer, especially before, like, the choosing of the apostles, for example. Nehemiah, in his book, is described as fasting as they are praying about protection uh, on their journeys to Israel, down to the uh, promised land. So it, it can also be undertaken during times of great distress, like when we need to really focus on what it is that God would have us do. But it's also given for those times when we are called to make important decisions, something that we are imploring God's help with in doing. Yeah, well said. All right, last couple minutes here. We got a couple more we need to go with. So this is going to be a popular one. (laughs) Self-examination. 2 Corinthians 13, test yourself by the word of God. You know, that, that sort of fun stuff that you all like to hear. Yeah, this one, I'd say it's almost, I don't know, it's one of the more important points because this whole discipline thing, it's not going to really stick unless you take the time to critically look at your life, the way you think, the way you act, what you do, and, you know, adjust where it needs adjustment. I mean, this is an essential part of really any facet of life, whether it's spiritual or not, to to improve upon. If you're doing a trade, a vocation, and you want to get better at it, that's going to involve self-examination. Well, how much more so for the Christian life, which is our journey onto eternity with the Lord? I think to be clear here, too, we are to be tested by the word, not by like public opinion, not by our mere sentimentality. Like, I'm just examining myself, and I want to make sure that I'm in some kind of emotional state so that I can you know, go about what it is that I want to do. But to actually consider our place in life according to the commandments, according to the word, and to consider, as you said, Aaron, how we might actually improve in our walk as Christians. Of course, ever keeping the primary object outside of ourselves, our Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done. Um, There's an unhealthy emphasis on introspection, or there can be. 
but oftentimes we find ourselves with a total lack of introspection. I never need to look and see if my house is in order, so we'll be fine. Next thing you know, there's a fire in the kitchen and your daughters ran off. <laughs> you know, you just, you've got to keep things, things in order. Okay. And finally, one that becomes increasingly difficult in this information age, holy conversation. And this is really coming out of Ephesians chapter five, where Paul is basically exhorting us to consider what it is that we actually say, that the the words that we use and talk to like other Christians about are actually going to affect us. I mean, you could, mm-hmm. James post this also and, and say that, you know, the tongue is, is a powerful thing, it can either bless or it can curse. Right. How we speak And what we speak about is going to deeply impact our Christian life. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi and Aaron Uphoff. God love you and God bless. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Jesus Christ has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus.